0: I have to apologize. I got a little bit of a throat this morning. I started to say for the children's benefit that I sounded like a frog with a man in his throat. Uh, they usually get that. Uh, let me, uh, Richard has been reading for you in his excellent sermons, The Beatitudes. And uh, it, it has been our custom to read these uh, together. I want to ask you to turn, though, to in the back of your hymnal to page number 530 and to scripture reading 58, which is one of the corollary passages to the fifth beatitude, which is blessed are the merciful. Look at uh, selection 58. Now we are to read this in unison, and this is a little bit different from our ordinary translation, but uh, let's read it together. Do you have it? It's Selection 58 in the back of your hymnal from Romans 12. I appeal to you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold to to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, never flag in zeal, be aglow with the Spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in your hope. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now then, if uh, you want to see the Beatitudes in that translation, they are on page 40, uh, selection 45 in your hymnal. Or you can find it in the Pew Bible, um, where they are also written on page 1145. Someone asked me to do that who has trouble looking up things in the Scriptures. And uh, you'd be amazed at how many people do. Uh But that's where it is. If you always look at the page number, if you can't find it any other way, that's uh, 1145. Now, what we've been talking about, what Richard has been preaching so eloquently and so um, ably, has been these marvelous beatitudes. These are not suggestions. There are people who read a, a, a Scofield Bible, and I have a lot of wonderful Christian friends who used to use the old Scofield notes, and they're great notes. But don't be led astray to think that this applies to the kingdom age. I don't need them in the kingdom. I I need them now. Uh, And you need them now. And Jesus meant for them to apply now. And if Paul felt uh, as he did about the law of God, then you think how much more these beatitudes, which are commandments of our Savior, and come toward us. Here are real priorities, and there is no Christian faith apart from them. Now then, let me uh, begin by talking about priorities and essentials. A couple of weeks ago, well, it's been more than a month ago, Clayton Bell was here in uh, Asheville. Dr. L. Nelson Bell's son, who is the distinguished minister, senior minister of the Highland Park Presbyterian Church in Dallas, Um uh, And that church is just split. And Clayton uh, called me on the phone and asked if I would meet him in Asheville for lunch. And uh, we had a wonderful visit. We talked about our children. We talked about the things that had happened in Dallas. We talked about our faith. Uh, We talked about uh, Dr. and Mrs. Bell. We talked about many, many things together. On the way over there, I I have a custom of listening to tapes uh, as I drive in the car. And uh, I was listening to a tape of a sermon preached by Earl Palmer, who is the minister of the First Presbyterian Church in Berkeley, California. And Earl was uh, is a friend of Clayton's, and he is uh, just moved to the First Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. And uh, Earl Palmer was telling on this tape of how his minister of music had... Uh, uh, gone on vacation to Pasadena, California. And uh, while he was in Pasadena, uh, he and his wife were going there to the 20th anniversary of her high school graduation. They had two sons, one 20 and one 18. And uh, so while they told the sons where they would be staying at the Hilton Hotel in Pasadena, and the two sons were going to a youth conference, like Sean uh, goes to so often. And uh, uh, after the reunion, and they at the uh, place at the high school, uh, Sonny, the the music minister had um, uh, he and his wife had gone to bed there in the Hilton, and they were awakened early the next morning by a telephone call, and it was a policeman. And the policeman said to Sonny Salzberger, he said, Mr. Salzberger, I need to see you down in the lobby immediately. Well, no one knew where they were except their two sons. And so Sonny said, is something wrong? Is this an emergency? And he said, yes, it's an emergency. And he said, well, what is it? And he said, I'll tell you when you come down to the lobby. He hung up the phone. His wife said, what on earth happened? He said, I don't know. And he slipped on some clothes, went 10 floors down that he said seemed like forever getting to the uh, lobby, and came out, and there was the policeman. And the policeman said to him, "Uh, Mr. Salzberger, I'm sorry to tell you, but someone has broke into your car. And he went, yippee! (laughs) 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 And the the cop backed off. (laughs) And uh, you know, if you're a parent, how you would feel. You've got two. You've got a 20-year-old. You've got an 18-year-old. They're off driving to a youth conference, and the cop tells you that. And uh, uh, he said that he saw right away how little things mounted. He said that when he went out and looked at his car and the electronic stuff that had been stolen, it didn't even faze him. He didn't care. Uh, his kids were okay. And that's what really counted uh, with him. Well, now that shows you priority. And priority comes to us when we study the Sermon on the Mount. And if you have that chapter 5 of Matthew, when he, that is Jesus, saw the multitude, he went up on the mountain, and after he had sat down, his disciples came to him. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you're a learner from Jesus. And opening his mouth, Even that's an expressive term. Open his mouth, he spoke with authority. He began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. That means the person who doesn't say, Oh, I've heard it all, I know it all. You don't have to tell me this stuff. This is too elementary. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Sonny thought he knew it all until that policeman said that. There are people out in Killeen, Texas, and I've been there, uh, who today know what really counts in life. It doesn't have to do with things. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're the people who've already realized that this world does not satisfy us. And if it does not satisfy us, it is because we were never made just for this And then he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The deep weeping that comes uh, when we see wrong done. The weeping that comes when uh, we see others in sorrow. One of my favorite stories, and I thought of it when I saw these lovely little children uh, down front, is about a little girl whose mother had sent her skipping down to the grocery store to get a loaf of bread back in the days when you had neighborhood markets and you could do that. And the little girl was late getting back. And when she came back, her mother said to her, honey, why, why were you so slow? Uh, it's not that far to the store. And she said, I had to stop and help Mary cry. And her mother said, what do you mean? And she said, well, Mary had dropped her dolly and it fell on the sidewalk and broke. And she was sitting there crying, so I stopped to help her cry. Well, the little girl has the the message. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And God is the source. That beautiful hymn a while ago is a great hymn. Remember that earth has no sorrow, that heaven cannot heal. Blessed are the gentle, that is the humble, for they shall inherit the earth, the meek. The terrible, 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 terrible meek. The meek are power under control. I'll never forget being up in Labrador in Goose Air Force Base for the first time that I went in F-102. Uh, and Chuck Thomas is here today and he used to fly uh, jets out in Vietnam. And I can remember coming off the deck of a carrier in a Phantom F-4C that was capable of going 1,650 miles an hour. That's more than twice the speed of sound. I've often said that's the only time I ever got out of an airplane and heard myself coming. Uh, It's a powerful airplane, and when you come off the deck of that carrier, you feel like the fillings are coming out of your teeth. Uh, It catapults you off, and then when you land on that carrier, you feel it again. Well, the reason that I mentioned that powerful airplane is that you're riding on 15 tons, and most of that is fuel. It carries an enormous amount of fuel. And uh, that is power under control. Those men have computers, banks of computers. Uh, Those pilots are incredibly skillful. Uh, They can look at the computers and tell what's going on because that machine is fantastic. Uh, and uh, meekness is power that's under control. And Jesus said, blessed, happy. This is the priority. Happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know, I've thought about that a lot of times. Um, we have just gone into this uh, thing and seeing Russia and communism begin to fall apart. I have my own theory about things that led up to this and i really think that when that accident happened at chernobyl and all of those people began to understand that in an atomic war there will be no sir there will be no winners there won't be enough living left to bury the dead in a full nuclear exchange and these are things that could be kept from the people by a controlled press, but after Chernobyl, you can no longer keep it because near it is ground that can't even grow anything you can eat for a hundred years. Uh, it's, it's horrible. And so we will learn, or else there will be someone who said, Love your neighbor as yourself, or there will be no neighbor or no self. Uh, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now there is the blessing that comes to you just because you got to church this morning. It showed that there was some inclination in your heart to look toward God. And Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Abraham Lincoln said that this is one of the Beatitudes that he could claim, that he hungered and thirsted after righteousness. Satisfaction is guaranteed. If you hunger and thirst after righteousness, uh, then the Lord will speak to you. Now, all of us need to apply these things not to our neighbors, but to ourselves. Are we hungry to do God's will? Are we hungry uh, to show in our lives the characteristics which Jesus showed in his own life and which he tells us about here? He said, take my yoke upon you. And learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Uh, I can look at the glass of water, but if I don't drink it, it can't do anything to help my parched throat. I can look at a loaf of bread and tell you what it's made up of chemically, But if I don't eat the bread, I'll starve to death. Uh, You can look at Bibles. uh, You can come to church and sing hymns or go through the motions, but eat it, taste it. That's what Sean was talking about a while ago in that wonderful little message uh, that he brought. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And we know what hunger is when you look at Biafra, you look at Ethiopia, you look at people who are starving uh, all over the world, and we in America have so much, but the greatest hunger that we need is this hunger and thirst after righteousness. That again was pointed out in the uh, second hymn this morning. And then we come to what Charlie Allen, who is one of the greatest preachers I ever heard, uh, I used to be in Atlanta when he was in Atlanta, And Charles Allen said, of the eight Beatitudes, which he calls the keys of God's kingdom, this is one of the most appealing. This is, this one is the most appealing. The most important and the most difficult. The most appealing, the most important, the most difficult. Most appealing because mercy brings to mind kindness, unselfish service, goodwill, Everyone loves the good Samaritan. Isn't that interesting? The Bible doesn't call him good. We have put the good there because he was good. The good Samaritan, because of the example of mercy, we shrink from the justice of God, but we pray for his mercy. Most important, for without mercy, all of us are without hope. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the only prayer we can pray is the prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You remember two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a publican, And one guy bragged on himself to God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are. I fast two days a week. I know ordinary people who were pious, just fast one day. But I fast two days. And I give the money to the poor. He had a social conscience. I'm not like this publican who is here. And all that man could do who stood away off was to smite his breast and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said that man went down to his house justified rather than the other who was describing to God how good he was. All the focus on the Supreme Court's uh, confirmation hearings in the last um, weeks brought back to me an experience that uh, I went through once myself in Washington. Uh, There are what are called vindictive researchers. They research to find something to hurt someone else with. That's a vindictive researcher. not following these beatitudes at all. They show no mercy. And a vindictive researcher is one who can take all of the congressional record which has been put on computers and he can punch some buttons and see every speech that's been made, everything that's been said, and flash it all back and deal with you about it or surface it at an appropriate time. They know just when to let it go. Once I was opposed for a position as chaplain to the president in the White House by unidentified persons for unspecified reasons. Tell me how to answer an unidentified person's unspecified charge. You see, this is the way politics operates. It operates in this way, but there's a happier story that I know about the Supreme Court. Uh, when Justice Charles Evan Hughes, was appointed Chief Justice of the United States of America. And he moved to Washington. He was a good Baptist and a very faithful Christian. And the first Sunday he was in Washington, he joined the Baptist Church. And at the same time that he joined the minister who called out the names of the people who were coming forward to join the church, there was a Chinese laundryman who had moved from San Francisco and bought a little laundry that was next to the church. And he came and joined the church. When the Chinese laundryman came forward with his pigtail down the back, he stood way over on one side. As the more elegantly dressed people came forward, they all came and stood on the other side, away from this humble Chinese laundryman. Then, with great unction, the minister announced that the Chief Justice of the United States of America Charles Evan Hughes had also joined the church. Charles Evan Hughes, the chief justice, came forward. He walked over and stood by the Chinese laundryman. He didn't want him to feel that he felt he was inferior to him. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This little note here, John Ellington, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite people, uh, Johnny was is a great translator and he says that in the Bandy language in Liberia that in translating Matthew 5-7 he translates it happy are those who catch the sorrow on other people's eyes God will catch the sorrow on their eyes isn't that good? You ever notice how eyes can tell stories? And you look at those hurt eyes. You look at those angry eyes. You look at those sad eyes. And this bandy language picks it up. Happy are those who catch the sorrow on other other people's eyes. God will catch the sorrow on their eyes. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain... Mercy. When I was thinking about this, I thought, first, this beatitude reminds us that the Christian is the one himself who has obtained mercy. We used to sing a song, I don't think it's in our book, called, at Calvary, mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. And when you experience that kind of mercy, it makes it possible for you to realize that as you have obtained mercy, you also must show mercy. The Christian is one who has to be merciful himself, is the second thing, he he doesn't have any choice. Uh, He's got to be merciful. If you read the parable that Jesus told one day Peter, I I call it the Peter parable. Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? Brethren and sisters and little kids too. I know a lot of people who would never forgive anyone seven times. That's a lot of times. Seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you, Up to seven times, but up to 70 times, seven, over 190 times. How many churches do you think exist where people would forgive? This week, I cringed in my soul when I was being asked to help out in a domestic dispute. Um, Not people in our church, or uh, in one not even in our state, and uh, one person said to me, said that it was reported to him, I can never forgive him for that. You don't say those words when you belong to Jesus. I can never forgive him for that. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, we all think that forgiveness is some sort of theory. It's great as a theory, but when we have to use it and really practice it, there's where the rubber meets the road. And that's what Peter gets to here. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents, an enormous fortune. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children, and all that he had, and repayment be made. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And the lord of that slave felt compassion, and released him, and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves, who owed him a hundred denarii, a paltry sum, nothing. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. Now this is a part no one ever brings out about this story. So his fellow slaves fell down and began to entreat him, saying, Be merciful to me. Have patience, and I'll pray you. But he was unwilling he went over threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they began to talk about it. They were bewildered at this cruel treatment. And so they went to the king, and they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then, summonsing him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you begged it of me. Should you not also have shown mercy on your fellow slave even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with an anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Now look at what Jesus Christ says. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. People say, I I can forgive him, but I'll never forget it. That does not work. And then there's a third thing, and I've got to stop. It's a basic Christian truth here, is that a Christian who is not merciful is a contradiction in terms. You remember the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, there was a Levite that went by. Those were the chosen people of God and saw this poor Jew who had been robbed and beat up and left for dead lying at the side of the road. But he didn't go over to help him. He looked at him and went on by. And a priest who comes by, Religious authorities, they knew the four spiritual laws backwards and forwards and could recite all of the nav verses and everything else. And they looked and saw it, but went on by. And then, if you had been there, you would have seen a snarl of hatred when Jesus said, and a certain Samaritan. He didn't even talk about Samaritans in front of other Jews. If you went to the Knesset in Jerusalem today and started talking about Arabs, you see what's still going on there. Every week we see it. Well, Jesus makes this hated Samaritan who is a heretic, he only believes half the Bible, the hero of his story. And you know why? When Jesus, I've often thought about that lawyer. That is one lawyer who asked a question which he wished he had never asked. He asked, when Jesus said, Love your neighbor as yourself, the lawyer thought I got you. And who is my neighbor? Jesus said, Okay, I'll tell you a story. Then he tells this story. Then at the end of it, he said, Who was neighbor unto him who fell among the thieves? He turns a noun, neighbor, into a verb. Who showed him mercy? And mercy is something that you don't just create in your mind. Mercy is love. It's your pain in my heart in such a way that I do something about it. The Christian man who shows mercy, lastly, is the man who will obtain more mercy. I watched a film last week. You can get it in the library over here. Joseph Conrad uh, came out of Poland, or Russia, and became a citizen of the British and went to sea. And he wrote Lord Jim. And one of the finest performances I've ever seen of Peter O'Toole is in that film, Lord Jim. You don't get all the story there, Lord Jim is just an exemplary hero in the Navy. He does everything. He scores all you can score on the SAT. He uh, does everything exactly correct. He gets a perfect rating for it all and becomes a, a first mate on a ship and is just wonderful. And then one day he slips on a ladder and falls and breaks his leg. And he has to be taken ashore in a foreign port and his ship has to go on to sea. Then he signs on as next to the captain of an old rusty vessel that's taking 800 Muslims to a pilgrimage. And the thing isn't seaworthy. The boilers are apt to explode, and they get out to sea. And Lord Jim knows this. He sees how awful the ship is, and they get into a terrible storm, and the captain had put too much pressure on the boilers and they're about to break and Lord Jim is approached by a Muslim with a beautiful countenance and face, a man who is the leader of this group, and he said, Sir, is everything all right? And he said, Oh, yes, everything's fine. And Lord Jim has such a trusting face that he believes him. the Muslim does. And then they go secretly and do like that Greek sea captain did the other day, cut the, the ropes on the lifeboats and throw them overboard. And down in the lifeboats, they look up at Lord Jim and say, Come ahead, jump. Don't, don't stay on that thing and sink with these heathen." And he panics. And in a moment of fear, he jumps down into the boat and he's saved. But later, when the inquiry is made, that ship did not sink, and all those people did make it back to port. And Lord Jim is disgraced. He works as a coolie, hauling people in a rickshaw. He works carrying stuff like a stevedore up on board the deck of freighters. He tries to hide himself among the poorest, most dejected people of the earth. And when he finally makes one great and good friend who confides in him that he knows he's running from something, he says to him that he could never go home, not back to England, where his father is a parson, where his father is the minister, because he said he would never understand. He would never understand about how I dishonored him and became a coward. Now, this is the story. A lot of people won't come to God. Lord Jim uh, gave his life and made up for his thing that way. But had he gone back, his father would have forgiven him. And don't think that you've gone so far that God does not have mercy enough to reach out and save you. He does. He's not shocked by any revelation of your sin. He already knows. it. And if you go back to him, that mercy, which not only feels for you, reaches out and does something for you. I've often pointed out that in the greatest story Jesus ever told, the parable of the prodigal son, it's the only time in all the Bible where God is pictured as in a hurry. The boy is seen afar off, and his father runs to meet him. And that's mercy. Mercy is love and sympathy and something more. It does something. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, You can accept Him this morning by giving as much of yourself as you know how to give to as much of Him as you can understand, and I invite you uh, to do that. Our closing hymn is printed on your bulletin. Look at the last stanza. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thy own dear presence to cheer and to guide strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow blessings all mine with ten thousand beside and that's the God who reaches for you now let us conclude our worship by singing the hymn printed on your bulletin great is thy faithfulness let's stand with Now let's all bow our heads in prayer. I want to read from an old diary of private prayer. that I've just about worn this prayer out. But you apply it, to, apply it to yourself and I'll apply it to mine. Holy God, to whose service I long ago dedicated my soul and my life, I grieve and lament before thee that I am still so prone to sin and so little inclined to obey, so much attached to the pleasures of sense, and so negligent of the things that are spiritual, so prompt to gratify my body, so slow to nourish my soul, so greedy for present delight, and so indifferent to lasting blessedness, so fond of idleness, and so indisposed to work, So soon at play and so late at prayer. So brisk in the service of self and so slack in the service of others. So eager to get and so slow to give. So lofty in my profession and so low in my practice. So full of good intentions and so backward to fulfill them. So severe with my neighbor, and so indulgent with myself. So eager to find fault, and so resentful at being found fault with. So able for great tasks, and so discontented with small ones. So weak in adversity, and so swollen in self-satisfied prosperity. O merciful heart of God, grant me yet again forgiveness. Hear my sorrowful tale, and in thy great mercy, blotted out from the book of thy remembrance. Give me faith so to lay hold of thine own holiness, and so to rejoice in the cross of Christ my Savior, that resting in his merits rather than my own, I may more and more become conformed to his likeness. All this I ask for in his holy name. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father, from Jesus Christ our Savior, and the Holy Spirit, our Comforter and Guide, be and abide with you all.